This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, allusions to male-female sex, violence and mayhem, including the use of firearms, casual ableism, and abusive cultural values, including forced breeding and patriarchal control over the relationships of others. The views of the characters do not represent the views of the author. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 293. Hello there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 34 in my Metamorph City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. The members of the Summer's Cell have split up to tackle two very different missions. Brian and Fiona have infiltrated the office of Viscount Security, a firm controlled by the Vampire Crime Syndicate. Inside Viscount's vault is the data that the vamps smuggled in through the Skyport several weeks ago, which Brian and his team had tried and failed to intercept. This time, though, they have help. From Callie Linder, a teenage runner with supernatural luck powers, and from Miriam Bakhtavar, the Hive Elder who is coordinating their mission from the outside. In last week's episode, they tangled with the vampire watchman who was posted inside the vault. They disabled him with help from Callie, who brought explosive reagent pods filled with garlic powder. Brian got the vault's computer wired into the main network and uploaded the digital files, while Callie and Fiona went through the hard copies and took pictures of anything useful. As they went to leave, though, the team found themselves cut off from the exits by a syndicate fire team, which is closing in on their position. Meanwhile, Sasha and Rebecca have been trying to help Rebecca's ex-boyfriend, Daniel Sharabi. In a bid to make himself more valuable in Hive society, Daniel took on the curse of Metamor and became an androgyne. He didn't realize it, but this ancient magic also split his soul in two, creating male and female personalities within the same body. Under normal circumstances, Daniel and Danny's personas would not have diverged very much, but Danny had the misfortune of meeting Jared Tamlin, a latent telepath with an extraordinary psionic ability. Jared doesn't realize it, but he is a soul shaper. He has the ability to change what people want and value, at a level far deeper than conscious thought. Jared's influence has caused Danny to diverge sharply from Daniel, to see her masculine half as an old self that she has discarded. 
but Sasha and Rebecca performed a ritual spell designed to strengthen the Daniel persona, to give him more access to his and Danny's shared brain space. Now, as Jared and Danny celebrate their new engagement in a remote corner of Overlook Park, Daniel returns to self-awareness for the first time in weeks, and Sasha and Rebecca look for an opportunity to rescue him from Jared's power. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read By Chris Lester Chapter 34 Are they out of there yet? Not as yet. Sasha bit her lip. This is taking longer than we thought it would. Somewhat, yes, Miriam Bakhtivar agreed, but not overly so. Surely I don't need to remind you that no mission ever goes precisely to plan. The elder sounded far more at ease about that than Sasha felt. The younger teep gripped the phone more tightly and paced back and forth between the kitchen and the living room. With Brian and Fiona out of contact, the nest was feeling more like a cage. I know, I'm just not used to being stuck at home for them. C&C is supposed to be my job. And instead, I'm stuck here, waiting for some sign that our spell kicked in. Also, I can go help Becca rescue her boyfriend. Damn it, the timing on this couldn't be worse. I understand how you feel, child, but there is little you could do even if you were here. The extraction team is already in position. As soon as we regain contact with Brian, we'll move to pull them out. Another voice said something that Sasha couldn't quite make out over the phone. We've just received word that Brian is linked up to our server, Miriam said. The files are coming across as we speak. Sasha nodded, glad of the news, but the knot in her stomach didn't unclench itself yet. She wouldn't be able to relax until she knew that Brian and Fee were safe. Sasha? Sasha turned around and saw Rebecca waiting for her. She changed into street clothes and pulled her hair back into a ponytail. We've got to go now, Becca said. It's starting. Jared Tamlin and Danny Sharabi made love in their secluded corner of Overlook Park, their minds and bodies joined as one. The shimmer had temporarily amplified their telepathic sensitivity, and for the first time the two lovers had entered a true gestalt. Thoughts, emotions, and memories intertwined freely, and together they rejoiced at the love, acceptance, and sense of belonging that each of them had found in the other's arms. Neither of them realized that there was a third person who had been excluded from their bond. Somewhere deep inside the mind of Danny Sharabi, a tiny spark of ego that still thought of itself as Daniel was becoming worried. Daniel hadn't felt worried in quite some time. In truth, he wasn't quite sure whether he had felt anything in quite some time. He felt like he had just been awakened from a dream, and he still wasn't sure what the dream had been about, or how long he had been asleep. Something outside of himself had grabbed hold of him and pulled him out of the dream, 
shaking him back into awareness. It wasn't as jarring as, say, having a bucket of cold water poured on him, but the force tugging on him was relentless and insistent. Part of him thought that it might be easier to slip back into the dream and forget the outside world completely, but the force held him fast and refused to let him give up so easily. As consciousness returned, Daniel found that he was aware of his body again, though he was not in control of it. From the way his body was moving and the sensations he felt, he knew that his female side was in control, and that she was making love to Jared. He had never thought of Danny as being a separate person from himself, but now it was obvious that that was exactly what she was. Daniel vaguely recalled someone telling him about that before, but he couldn't quite seem to access the memory. That wasn't the only memory he was missing, either. He reached out for his past, for the experiences that had made him himself, the breeding cell where he grew up, his parents and siblings, his life in the creche, even the trials and loneliness of the last year. The museum of his mind had been ransacked, the paintings and sculptures replaced with crude drawings. He didn't need to ask where the memories had gone. Danny had taken them for her own. Desperate for something to stabilize his sense of self, Daniel reached out for the one facet of his past that Danny left almost completely untouched, his relationship with Rebecca. He clung tightly to those memories, from their first meeting to their last kiss. These are mine, he thought fiercely, as if daring Danny to try to take the memories away from him. Danny didn't seem interested in contesting the point. She had Jared, which seemed to be all she wanted or needed. More importantly, she had their body. That thought sent tremors of fear running through Daniel. Danny, or the Danny-Jared group mind that now controlled both of their bodies, had buried Daniel inside his own mind, and buried their love for Rebecca along with him. He didn't know how it was even possible, but Danny seemed to be cutting herself off from anything that would get in the way of her love for Jared, even if it meant trapping Daniel inside her forever. Like hell, Daniel thought. He turned and shouted into their shared mind, with as much effort as he could manage. It's my body too, Danny! You can't just turn me off because I'm inconvenient! Damn it, I'll fight you if I have to! For a moment, Danny Jared almost seemed to stop and listen to Daniel. Then another orgasm crashed through Danny's body, and she did not think of anything for some time. Fiona sent two more shots across the office of Viscount Security. Brian heard one of the syndicate agents gurgle and stumble backwards, but Fiona shook her head as she darted back under cover. Miss the eyes, she said. One hit to the throat, but he's still up. Brian grimaced. He'd been hoping that the vamps had sent their human ghouls to deal with the break-in, but obviously that wasn't the case. He glanced over at the runner crouching beside him. Got any more of those garlic bombs? A couple, Callie said, pulling out the soft yellow reagent pods. You'll have to hit him dead on to really knock him out of commission, though. Give one to Fee, Brian said. Between your luck and her skill, we ought to hit something. 
Here, both of you hold on to me. Wait for my signal and be ready to run. The runner's eyes questioned him, but she didn't protest. She linked hands with him and Fiona, and Brian put his finger to a nearby electrical socket. Taking command of the current, he sent his thoughts down into the power lines that crisscrossed the room. In moments, he found the points of resistance, the fine wires and delicate circuitry that lay in every computer, every card reader, every single piece of advanced equipment in the office. Once he had found these vulnerable spots, he reached out and channeled the current into the weak points surrounding the vampires, concentrating the power in the places that were least able to handle it. The response was nearly instantaneous. Computer consoles sparked and popped all over the office as the overheated circuits set fire to plastic and rubber. Countless tiny explosions joined into a deafening chorus, further adding to the confusion. Little clouds of smoke rose up all over the office, quickly spreading into a haze that filled the room. Printers burst into flame as they ignited the paper inside them, and those fires spread to the paperwork that littered the desks of the employees. Overhead sprinklers came on and doused the room in water, which added steam to the smoke and provided further concealment. The water also provided a new outlet for the current, and two vamps who had been standing too close to the computers were thrown back by the force of the electricity running through them. Brian kept an insulating barrier in place around himself, Fiona, and Callie, forbidding the current from touching them. The vamps fell back, wary of the fires that the sprinklers had yet to extinguish. Brian knew that the smoke and steam would confound their heat vision, and they would conserve their ammunition rather than risk emptying their clips into nothing. He squeezed Callie's hand and sent a telepathic signal to her and Fiona. Now! Brian rose to his feet and summoned a magnetic field, then pushed in the direction of the vamps. A wave of invisible force flew across the room, blasting down cubicle walls and sending a barrage of office equipment down on the vampires. Moving as one, he, Fiona, and Callie turned and ran for the hallway that led to the emergency exit. Fiona paused at the entrance to the cross corridor took careful aim, and threw the garlic bomb at one of the vamps who was already crawling free from the wreckage. Callie chucked hers wildly into the haze a moment later. The resulting howls and retching noises told Brian that both bombs had hit their marks. The fire had triggered Viscount's evacuation protocols, and the blast door was already unlocked when they reached it. Brian opened the door a few centimeters, and immediately Miriam's thoughts came rushing into his mind. Brian, she said, both fright and relief evident in her telepathic voice. My espers show four more vampires guarding that exit. An image flashed in his mind, showing him the exact locations of the four gunmen. He passed the image along to Fiona and Callie. Too many to take before they hit us, he murmured. I have an idea, Callie said. If she was surprised by having the picture shoved into her mind, she didn't show it. Stay close behind me and get ready to grab their guns with that magnet thing. The runner took two deep breaths, then put her shoulder to the blast door and shoved it open. An instant later, a magic field sprang up around her, enveloping all three of them in glowing pink light. 
The vamps on the staircase and the landing below opened fire, but tiny white motes of energy danced through the air and struck the incoming bullets, deflecting them safely away. The vamps hesitated, and in that instant Brian sent out his magnetic field, summoning their guns to his outstretched hands. Two of the vamps instinctively tried to hold on to their weapons, and were carried into the air along with them, flying away from the landing and into the open air. He saw the look of horror in their eyes as he dispelled the field halfway before the guns reached him. They screamed as they fell into darkness. Fiona took advantage of Callie's shield by carefully lining up her shots against the two remaining vamps. Her bullets found eyes and kneecaps, blinding and disabling the undead soldiers. Before they could regenerate, she darted down the staircase and threw them bodily over the railing, sending them to join their comrades at the bottom of the 400-meter shaft. Brian shoved the blast door shut to slow down any pursuit from behind them, then followed Fiona and Callie down to the third-level exit tunnel and out of the tower. Miriam had a getaway skimmer already waiting for them at the curb. They piled into the vehicle and raced off at breakneck speed, disappearing into the chaos of Metamore City traffic. Sasha gritted her teeth and tried to focus on driving. Miriam had just sent her the images from outside Viscount Security Solutions. A team of vampires were going inside, with more watching the emergency exit. She tried to reach out for some sign of Brian or Fiona while the blast doors were open, but the reception area was shielded just like the outer walls, and it acted as a sort of airlock against magical or psionic intrusion. The blast doors slid shut again, and Miriam's espers lost the vision. I should be there, she thought bitterly. I should be helping Brian and Fee get out of that damned office, not trying to rescue Daniel Sharabi from his own stupid decisions. Damn it, couldn't Rebecca have waited a day to try this? Rebecca gave her a hurt look. I can hear you, you know. Sasha winced. Shit. I'm sorry, Bex, I didn't want to send that. Maybe not, but you still meant it. She crossed her arms over her swollen belly. Could you wait if it was Fiona in trouble? What if Jared figures out what he can do and learns how to control it? That happens, and we might never get Daniel back. Sasha reached up and fingered her crucifix. The thought of Fiona getting turned into something she wasn't horrified her. She felt a fresh stirring of pity for Daniel. Rebecca found her hand and clasped it. I love Brian and Fee, too, but they've got Elder Boktavar and her team looking out for him. Daniel's got nobody except me. She looked out the window at the buildings rushing past. And I haven't been there for him like I ought to. Sasha tried to swallow the lump in her throat. You're right. I'm sorry, Rebecca. I'm with you on this, really. She paused. I just... You're afraid I'm choosing Daniel over our family, Rebecca said, her voice quiet. You're afraid we're going to break up over this. I'm not blaming you, Sasha said quickly. Not just you, anyway. I just... I'm thinking of all the things that could happen if we get Daniel back, and what it would mean for us if we do. 
I already know you're not going to let him just go back to living without you. Rebecca shook her head, saying nothing. Right. So what's that going to look like? There's the four of us, and then you've got Daniel on the side? Is he going to be happy with that, just sleeping with you and never having any kids of his own? What happens to our children if you decide you want to live with him instead of us? Rebecca looked at her sharply, then hesitated. Sasha could tell that the reality of the situation was sinking in. Daniel's an androgyne now, she said tentatively. He changed so he'd have a place in the collective, right? He could join us. Sasha grimaced. That's got its own set of problems, Bex. We still don't know if we can undo whatever Jared did to Danny. If she's going to be part of the family, she has to be ready to commit her life to all of us, not just you. If she can't do that, or if the rest of us can't live with her, then it could tear us apart faster than if you'd just had an affair. Rebecca nodded heavily. Yeah, I know. She squeezed Sasha's hand again. Promise you'll at least try? Sasha squeezed back. Of course I will. I just don't want you to get your hopes up too much. If you do this, it isn't going to be easy. Nothing that matters ever is. Just then, a sudden rush of thoughts broke into Miriam's mind link. Brian? Fee? Sasha asked. They're alive, Miriam said quickly. She sounded distracted. Hold on, Sasha. I need to help them get out. The link went disconcertingly quiet. Sasha looked at the clock on the dashboard of the skimmer and started counting the seconds. After two minutes and twenty-three seconds, the link opened up again. She heard Miriam, Brian, and Fiona, all of them sounding exhausted and relieved. We did it, Sash, Brian said. The intel's out. No casualties. Thank Eli, Sasha whispered, wiping tears out of her eyes. She focused her thoughts again and added, We're on our way to get Daniel now. Becca thinks he's ready to come out as soon as he gets a chance. Fiona's mind reached out and brushed tentatively against hers. Be careful, both of you. Sasha returned the touch, sending a wordless assent back to her. Rebecca joined them a moment later and did likewise. They had so much to say to each other, so many things that needed to be set right, but they needed to do it face to face. By unspoken agreement, they let it rest for now. See you back at the nest, Brian said. Then he and Fiona withdrew from the link. Sasha turned her eyes to the citadel looming before them. One rescue coming up, she murmured. Miriam took Brian, Fiona, and Callie to the subway station at the east end of the square. While they seemed to have made a clean getaway, they couldn't be completely sure that the vampires weren't following the skimmer. The station was a major transfer point for people traveling to and from the Citadel, which made it easy for them to disappear into the chaos of the Friday night crowds. Once they were certain they weren't being followed, they put on disguise charms and boarded a train for home. Meanwhile, two of Miriam's agents used their own charms to impersonate Brian and Fiona. 
Brian never saw them, but he knew that they would let themselves be seen boarding a long-distance train to Einador. Vampires couldn't survive in the Holy Land's mana-dead terrain, so Miriam's people would probably be safe from any reprisals. They must be awfully loyal to you to just uproot their lives like that, Callie said. Miriam chuckled. Oh, they don't live in Metamore City, child. They're friends of mine from the Yasalem Hive. I wasn't born in Metamore, you know. The runner smirked. With a name like Bakhtavar, I figured. Leaning back in her chair, she turned to Brian and raised an eyebrow. So, you ready to settle up? Of course. Brian pulled out his mobile phone and sent the text message that would order the transfer of 150,000 marks into Callie's account. Done, he said. He offered a hand to her. We couldn't have gotten out of there without you, Callie. Thank you. Callie clasped his hand and grinned. Hey, I couldn't have gotten into there without you, so we're even. Once Malcolm gets over wanting to kill me, this is going to do great things for my rep. And how long will that take? Miriam asked. Callie shrugged. Probably not too long. Two or three months, I'm guessing. Good runners are hard to find, and Malcolm's not the type to let a grudge get in the way of business. Brian hoped she was right. The damage to Viscount's office would be covered by their insurance company, but the damage to their reputation might linger for years. Clients would have a hard time believing in Viscount's security systems when word got out that their home office had been cracked. A chime sounded overhead, and a synth voice spoke from the loudspeakers. Now approaching Morris and 29th. Callie got to her feet and turned to look at them. This is my stop. It's been great working with you guys. Brian smiled. Keep it on the bright side, Callie. She winked at him. Thanks, but the bright side isn't where I work. Huh, I guess not. Callie's eyes fell on Miriam, and her expression grew serious. Good luck finding that girl, she said, her voice uncharacteristically subdued. Just be careful, okay? This Victor guy, I know his type. You take something away from him, he's not going to forget it. The doors of the train slid open, and she stepped out onto the platform. There she hesitated, clenching her jaw, while people pressed past her on the way into or out of the car. Callie? Brian asked. A chime sounded, warning pedestrians to step away from the doors. She turned and looked back at them. Philippe Devereux didn't kill your people. I never worked with him. Brian gaped at her. What? But then the doors closed, and Callie stepped back out of the red zone. She locked eyes with Miriam and stared at her until the train pulled away from the station. Miriam sat back in her seat, visibly shaken. What is it, Elder? Fiona asked. What did she tell you? Miriam looked up at them. It took several seconds for her to find her voice. She said that Victor deceived everyone he ever worked with. She swallowed. And that we should kill him the first chance we get.
And that's the end of Chapter 34. Come back next time, when Brian's team begins analyzing what they have obtained from Viscount, and Daniel makes good his escape. Haruki Murakami said, Like most novelists, I like to do exactly the opposite of what I'm told. It's in my nature as a novelist. Novelists can't trust anything they haven't seen with their own eyes or touched with their own hands. So, come along with me. Or don't, I guess. I can't tell you what to do. But here's the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of July 10th through July 16th. I wrote 2,663 words this week, over the course of 3.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 761 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 29 days without breaking my chain. This week I finished my edits on learning the ropes and delivered it to my narrators for recording. I also wrote up the contract and sent it to them for review. Once we've all signed it and the project is underway, I look forward to sharing the news with you, because these are two amazingly talented women, and I'm super excited to have them working on my book. I also started working on a new short story this week. This is another House of Bellevue story, which I'm going to offer as an incentive for people to join the L.C. Williams mailing list. Unlike the other stories I've written in the setting, this one uses Alex as the viewpoint character. I'm only about 1,100 words in, but I'm really enjoying the chance to see these characters and relationships from a new perspective. The story is called Out of the Shadows, and I'll tell you more about it as the writing process continues. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.